This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Jack Fortnum, the CFO of Ingredient. You're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode number 344. something different. We had to find a way to change the game. And uh, little did I know when I launched into it that this actually became part of the whole broader people effort. It was really, it really became bigger than healthcare cost containment because uh, I realized that this, this had the ability to improve employee engagement, uh, raise productivity, improve safety, lower workers' compensation costs. There's, there's just huge connects coming out of this that I didn't initially realize. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Tom Walsh, CFO of Art Iron of Toledo, Ohio. Turn back the clock three decades ago and more, and Tom Walsh's finance career came to a fork in the road. One path led to the accounting ranks of a large multinational. The other path led to the finance department of a privately held fourth-generation family-owned steel fabrication company with deep roots in its Midwestern community. Tom joined Art Iron, where he rose through the ranks to the CFO office. Tom shares his story and more after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Tell us a little bit about yourself and 
how you uh, prepared yourself for a CFO role? Well, I think I would highlight um, three three milestones, three significant things that occurred to me over the years. Um, I'll name them first, and then I'll dive into each one a little bit uh, in more depth. So uh, first was a decision made a long time ago that the route I wanted to take was um, more in a smaller or medium-sized privately held firm versus a, versus a Fortune 500 firm. The second thing that uh, became uh, really significant for me uh, was that I actually became a CFO uh, sooner than expected due to some unusual circumstances and really before I had a chance uh, to be properly groomed for all the various uh, roles and responsibilities that I would have as a CFO. And then uh, the third was uh, finding out about and becoming an active member of a professional organization, uh, in this case, the uh, Construction Financial Management Association. So back to that first one, the small versus large question. Um, I was uh, seeking a position at the time, a long time ago, and I was really juggling two different offers. One from a small privately held company and one from a very large Fortune 500 company. And as I looked at that uh, small company, I, I was aware of the age of the person who was the CFO at the time. And I knew that the controller was uh, slotted for that position uh, in, in the future. And I also then um, understood right away that there was a, a controllership opportunity available there in a relatively short period of time. And then I also uh, obviously understood uh, the responsibilities uh, that were associated with those two job offers. And in the case of a small firm, uh, they were looking to develop, at that time, an in-house computer system. They had been using an outside data processing firm, so I'm, I'm probably dating myself a little bit with that, but that's what they were dealing with back at that time. So. I knew right away that I would really be in a high visible position. I'd be working with a team that would define all the transaction processing, all the data capture, all the management reporting needs of the organization. So I would get a great understanding of what that organization was all about, how it worked, the people inside of it, how they worked. So that just really struck me as very interesting and uh, a super opportunity to learn and grow at a very fast rate. And the large firm opportunity was uh, really probably more traditional of what you might find in a large firm at that point in time. It, it wasn't nearly as wide. It didn't seem nearly as interesting. And so I, um, I went with the uh, opportunity at the smaller firm. And I remember when I communicated that to the large firm, they were really very quite surprised. I don't think that happened a lot, but that was kind of my route going a different direction, uh, if you will, going small versus large. And that really paid off over time, I think. The um, One of the other points that I mentioned was becoming a CFO before I was completely ready. So what had occurred here is uh, the CFO at the time, person who had been my mentor, um, unfortunately had a health issue and ended up retiring much sooner than expected. And at that point, I was, uh, I was sitting in the role brand new to it, had really had very limited exposure to um, some pretty big parts of it, like the business insurance and risk management, the benefit packages and how all that worked. 
the uh, uh, surety um, aspect of the business. Again, this is construction, so surety bonds are a, a big piece of uh, what happens here uh, at banking relations, all of those kinds of things. So I was in a position where I had to learn pretty fast, and one of the initial things I did was try and reach out to people that I felt could help me, uh, frankly, that I felt should be able to help me. So that would be the insurance agent for our firm, the surety agent for our firm, uh, our banker, reached out to all of those people really just to try and make sure I was understanding those responsibilities as well as I could and what others would be looking for uh, from me, not just inside the company but outside the company. And then an, another interesting thing that was happening here at that point in time is we were going through a strategic uh, discussion about what we wanted to do with our business going forward. So at that point in time, the company was, uh, they, we were in two separate businesses. But as we looked at it, we really thought we could be uh, competitive in the long term in one of those two businesses, but for a variety of reasons, we didn't think we could in the other. And so we opted to sell that second one. Um, so. Uh, that was uh, yet another thing um, at that point in time that we were dealing with. And what that would ultimately lead to, um, perhaps in some ways it made it easier for me to reorganize the finance staff that I inherited um, because uh, we were no longer going to be two separate businesses with a headquarters. We were just going to be reorganized into one business firm. So I had an opportunity, if you will, almost right out of the gate to take a fresh look at that and really um, optimize that to what I thought the new firm would need. And then the last one of those milestones that I mentioned was the Construction Financial Management Association, or CFMA for short. Uh, really, when I was trying to learn and grow into the CFO role, a couple of those contacts that I mentioned earlier, uh, they recommended CFMA to me. And when I looked into it, I found out that uh, this particular organization was really all about helping financial management people in this industry get better, and I, I really uh, liked that. They have great educational programs. Those programs are all about what I do all day, every day, uh, great networking opportunities with other financial professionals. And so it really has uh, become a big part of my lifelong learning and attempting to grow and get better uh, over time. Tom, I, I, I love this story because I think so many uh, finance professionals do face choices in their career like uh, the one you did, and you outlined your criteria so well as far as what was behind your uh, decision-making. Um, but let me ask, what was the span of time that you just covered from your, your entry into the company? And it, what, what, how many years were, uh, transpired? Okay, so um, that, that time was uh, actually uh, about 34 years ago. I've been here 33 years now. How, often, how, how soon after uh, you joined the company did your CFO retire? Um, actually, I had worked here uh, for a while, um, starting in the position I described, which we referred to as a senior accountant here, uh, which had a large role in uh, that development of, of the accounting system. 
I was here probably uh, two years, became the controller, and um, from that point then worked as the controller for probably about 15 years before this event occurred. Did you expect to be here 34 years later? It's nice uh, to have that, but sometimes it's rare today in the business world. Is there some reason that you knew that this business was continue going to continue to build itself in the Ohio region? I couldn't be completely sure of that. Um, actually, in my mind, I, I don't think I could have been completely sure of anything because uh, back at, in the period of time that we're talking about, there was a tremendous upheaval uh, in the large firm world. A lot of them were being taken over, um, and a lot of that was actually occurring in my hometown here, Toledo, Ohio, so it was very much in the news. But as it related to uh, this firm um, that, that I decided to join, I did get a chance to come to understand a little bit about the ownership and um, the fact that they were strongly tied to this community. So um, this firm started in 1905, and um, it's the whole way it's been in Toledo, and it, it's uh, now in its fourth generation of ownership, same family. So I, I did have a sense that they were obviously really in it for the long term, and, and the fact that they were involved in the community in more ways than running a business. So they they were involved in boards and charitable uh, organizations and other community efforts that that told me that they, they, they really did have a tie and, a, and a, a commitment to this to this firm and to this area. Okay, it's a family-owned business, four generations deep. Now that is rare. <laughs> you, you have my attention. Uh, it's <laughs> rare that we've had uh, family-owned companies uh, among our interviews, so we're, we're excited to uh, be talking to you now more than ever there, Paul. Let's find out something about Art Iron and this uh, the steel industry and, and what are Art Iron's offerings. What would you share with us? Okay, well, um, the, the structural steel fabrication business, um, it, it's a mature uh, industry. It's a very competitive industry. It's very price sensitive. Uh, sometimes we're, we're sensitive about all that because uh, we feel like maybe um, people view us in a commoditized way, and uh, we like to think that, that we provide more value than that. But um, really, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that as things have evolved over time, uh, things that we've always laid our hat on, uh, like, the ability uh, to produce a high-quality product, the ability to produce um, to schedule, to meet deadlines, if you will, because those are critical in the construction of a building. Those things really are just the, the I almost call them the price of poker, if you will. They're the ante. Um, you have to have them or you don't even get to submit a proposal on a project. So. Anymore, I think probably your best chance to differentiate yourself is to really figure out how you can become a problem solver for your customer. Um, figure out how you can help them out, maybe with schedule, maybe with uh, coordination with other trades, of which the construction of buildings tends to be a big, hairy, complex uh, kind of a situation, um, particularly the, the multi-story, high-rise type of building projects that we 
we find ourselves involved in. So, you know, maybe that's in design, maybe that's in engineering, uh, maybe that's just in teaming up um, um, and, and just figuring out how you can help your customer be successful and maybe some ways that go beyond just your normal uh, bid proposal, okay, here's the scope, here we go, we'll put it up, et cetera. You're, you're looking to do something a little bit extra. As always, we want to know what your uh, your favorite KPIs or metrics are, Paul. What, do you, what are you paying attention to very closely uh, to make sure this company's performing the way you want it to? Sure. I, I think um, – but when I talk about metrics, I like to talk about two different kinds of metrics first, one being leading and the other one being lagging. And um, so a lagging indicator, uh, basically that just tells you what has already happened. That doesn't mean it's not important. A lot of those are very important. You really need to understand um, what those indicators are telling you. Um, but we also like to look hard for leading indicators. And leading indicators are things that predict what's coming. And that's what makes them valuable. So. Just to use an example in the area of uh, safety, a lagging indicator would be lost work days due to accident. But a leading indicator would be near misses. And I think if you track your near misses over time, uh, you will see that they correlate to future lost work day uh, accidents. So that's why I like to, to, to focus on those leading indicators. They give you a chance to hopefully get out in front of something and, and do something about it, impact it, um, be before it happens. So metrics that I tend to look at um, here, uh, I just mentioned one, safety, near misses. Very, very, very big on safety here. We, we do a lot of things that can be very dangerous if you don't do them properly. Uh, on the people side, uh, employee turnover, employee engagement, and backlog. I uh, like to look at backlog three ways, uh, number of projects uh, that we're working, the revenue to completion on those projects, and the manufacturing hours in the backlog. Because it is a job shop, you're always really paying a lot of attention to backlog, and, and backlog is going to give you a great indication of the likelihood or not of achieving your, your financial goals for the year. In sales, uh, I like some leading indicators there, number of proposals in the pipeline, uh, dollar value of proposals in the pipeline. I like those things because they really, um, you know, once, once you factor in your hit rate on projects, your traditional hit rate, you can get a really good idea of whether your future backlog is going to be in the place you want. And if you know where your future backlog more or less is going to be, you're also going to have the ability to predict whether or not uh, your results for the year are going to be what you wanted them to be, what you hoped they would be. And one other one that's, a, I think, a little bit unique to the construction business because of the way we account for things, we have a, a term that we use uh, called underbillings. And I'll just define that a little bit for anybody who may not be familiar with that term. In our industry, revenue recognition is based on uh, percent of completion, based on cost. So to use an easy numeric uh, example of that, uh, let's say we have uh, successfully sold a million-dollar project. 
and we believe uh, that the budgeted cost to perform that project is going to be $800,000. And at the point in time that we're measuring things, uh, which we'll just say is partway through the project, we'll say we've incurred an actual cost of $400,000 at the time of measurement. So taking the actual cost of $400,000 and dividing it into budgeted cost that we expect uh, when we're all done with the project of $800,000, you're considered to be 50% complete and you're therefore allowed to recognize $500,000 of, of earned revenue on your income statement. So if at that very point in time, let's say you've only billed the customer $300,000 to that date, um, you're underbilled by $200,000. So when you look at that underbilling and, and you ask yourself, well, what are the possible reasons or explanations for why that might be, um, there's a few of them that come to mind. Perhaps you've got a, for, a poor billing process, at least on that project. Uh, perhaps you're behind on getting change order proposals to your customer. Uh, perhaps your customer is behind in getting change order uh, proposals approved by the owner. Or uh, potentially you're running over uh, your projected cost to perform that project. So obviously anyone or every one of those things are, are bad. And so you, uh, anytime you're seeing underbillings, whether it's on a single project or um, worse yet, spread across your work and process schedule, you're, you're really paying attention because you're worried about what might be happening to you. As a finance leader, have you sought to get greater visibility into the customer relationship over time? I mean, is there, is there a way you've been able to get visibility, more visibility into those relationships to help, to help your, uh, you know, the team? Uh, I, I do. Um, there, there's a few things that uh, I always try and do. One, uh, one thing we've always liked to do is to get our customers into our shop. We've got about a, uh, a 200,000 square foot facility here in Toledo. We, we have a lot of capability. We're pretty proud of it. We like to show it off. And um, so when we have customers coming this direction, I like to get myself invited on those tours. And I like to have the ability to interact a little bit with that customer, um, not just about what they're seeing, obviously, in our, in our plant, but just generally. How are, how are things going from them, how, from their perspective? How are we doing for them? Are there things they, you know, think they see in us that we should know? Whatever you might be able to pull from them at that, uh, at the point, at that point in time. And then the other thing I like to do is I like to, as often as possible, go out and visit job sites. So we're a little bit different than a lot of firms in the construction business in that we're not typically on site. We're a manufacturer. We, we put the product together here. We ship it out to the site, and then somebody installs it at the site. We don't actually have any employees on site, although we'll have a project manager who will typically spend a lot of time on that job site, particularly if it's a large project. So I like to get out to that site, and I like to take our team out to that site and um, just show them what's going on. We, I also love to take our team out into the plant and, sh and have them see 
um, how things work out there and watch them, uh, watch the fabricators put those products together and get them ready for shipment. And let them ask questions. I mean, I think it's great to understand as much as you can about what you do as a firm and to see it, which makes it easier to understand, whether it's in the plant or you're watching your product go up and having a chance to talk to your customer about how all that's going. What most of us, I think, think of this industry, it would be uh, sort of we would assume that it, it follows sort of the ebb and flow of the, the building industry. So uh, if the construction industry is doing well, Hard iron is doing well. Is that a correct assumption? That is a correct assumption. And um, historically, um, this has been one of those very cyclical businesses. Um, we tend to move up and down at a, a, a faster rate than the economy as a whole, if you will. Uh, so uh, if the general economy is up 5%, it's entirely possible construction's up 10 And if it's down 5%, it's the, the same. It, it's quite likely that construction will be down further. So uh, there's always that cyclical challenge to deal with, whether it's on the upside or the downside. Much rather have the upside problems than the downside problems, but they're, they're definitely both there. When you hear the uh, the phrase industry disruptor, are there any industry disruptors that uh, you would describe as such? I, I think technology is becoming, uh, it's not necessarily new, but it probably is evolving at a faster rate. Um, I've been here a long time, and this went for really from basically a very unautomated business uh, to a much more automated business, and I'm sure there is a lot more to come. So uh, you really have to pay attention to what's going on. You have to see what's available. Um, strategically select, you know, what makes sense for you at the rate that it makes sense for you. But if you're not paying attention to what's happening with that technology, you're, you're probably going to find yourself at a competitive disadvantage. And when you say that, I'm thinking your plants have become more automated or how steel is cut and to created uh, is becoming more uh, automated, or am I missing the point? No, you're, you're completely on point. Let me give you an example of uh, the latest um, investment that we made and the way that has uh, sort of changed the game. Um, that is with a automated um a piece of equipment that does the automated etching of the product. So what I mean by that is fabricators have two basic uh, responsibilities when they're fabricating uh, on steel, be it a beam column or, or whatever they happen to be working on at the time. There's a process that's called layout where essentially all the things that are going to be attached uh, to that beam or column clip angles, uh, all the things that will facilitate installation in the field, that has to all be laid out and put in the proper place. And it's obviously very important that it is in exactly the proper place and that the, the, the beam is cut to the exact length, the holes are drilled in the exact right place, the angles and the stiffeners and all of that that has to get attached gets attached to exactly the right place with exactly the right measurement. Uh, and then the easier piece of the fabricator's job is is the welding on of all of that um, pieces and parts. 
So uh, the layout used to be done completely by the fabricator with, you know, with the tape roller. They used to just set everything up, do all the measurements, put it in place, and then and then go back and do what they had to do. Well, there is now an automated piece of equipment that uses some burning capability and etches out and marks the entire piece. It does all the layout for the fabricator. And so as an example of just how significant that technology is, um, we were aware of a situation not in our shop, but when we were looking at this piece of equipment at a different shop, they had taken their most skilled layout person uh, off the floor, and they gave uh, that individual uh, a piece, a part, if you will, to lay out. It was a very complex part, and it took that individual over an hour to lay that out. And then they ran it through this piece of equipment, and the piece of equipment did it in six minutes. So that's an example of, of just how much uh, technology, how much time technology is taken out of that operation. And even more importantly, it doesn't get it wrong. Uh, as long as the information going into that piece of equipment is accurate, and there's every reason that it should be because it's coming straight from the, from the drawings and the CAD models, you're going to get a completely accurate piece out the back end, and you're going to get it a lot faster than you ever used to get it before. Interesting. Now, to build the business case to make the investment and buy this type of uh, high-ticket equipment, what is sort of the, the flow? Is it is it uh, uh, in, in your involvement, which, which at some point it obviously comes to your influence and in decision-making, whether this is the, the path we need to take? So I think um, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, a piece of equipment like this is not cheap. It involves uh, a, a significant investment of capital, particularly for a, a smaller firm like us. So the things we looked at um, was trying to get the best estimate of how much impact um, this could have in terms of quality and productivity, and we were – um, also, looking at this uh, in an upturn uh, in the market, so we had at that point reasonable confidence that um, that we were going to be able to run more business through it, not suffer one of those cyclical downturns uh, where suddenly we would have a lot less business to run through it. And I think the other piece of this is um, just to use some easy numbers. Uh, a lot of people have estimated that this will impact your plant throughput by about 25%. So, for instance, if you had, uh, say, 32 fabricators and you were looking at an increase in business and uh, you said, well, uh, what will this mean to us? Um, well, we might likely think in the, in the future we're going to have enough business to employ 40 fabricators, but... What if we could continue to employ 32 and get the business done that we used to get done with 40? So you, you pretty much understand what your what your fabricators cost, um, and you can pretty much figure with what what eight of them are worth. So you you can do a lot of math there that's very helpful. But um, 
You also have the other aspects like the improvement in quality and uh, not having to rework things because in our business, if something gets out of the field wrong, um, it typically becomes a very expensive proposition to fix. So we really thought that um, or we were reasonably confident that this investment was going to pay off uh, and do nice things for us. And um, I, I suppose we were also sort of uh, comforted by what we were seeing in the marketplace for this piece of equipment. You didn't just order one of these and get it tomorrow. Uh, there's a fairly long lead time, and there's a fairly long lead time because um, a lot of fabricators uh, across the country are putting these things in. So the manufacturer of this particular piece of equipment, uh, they get an order for you from you, and they basically put you in the queue, and uh, you have to wait for a little bit to be able to get it. So uh, it seemed to us that um, uh, it, it sort of confirmed what we thought we were seeing in, in the numbers and, and in our assessments of it. Thank you for uh, allowing me to throw you a few extra questions. I want to get back on pace with some of our uh, traditional questions. It's always interesting uh, to learn what you view as uh, an aha moment or a moment of strategic insight that you've experienced along the course of your career uh, due to uh, being a finance leader with your the lines of sight into the organization that you enjoy. What, would, uh, what comes to mind when I ask you for one of those moments of strategic insight that you've experienced? It's really interesting. When I first went down this path, I didn't really realize – uh, the full magnitude of the opportunity, uh, what would eventually become available um, by virtue of what we started to work on here. And um, so specifically what that was is probably well, four or five years ago, I was, I was looking at our, our health care uh, cost, and I was looking at that cost curve, uh, which was uh, pretty steep and pretty steep the wrong way. And... Um, just eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, uh, this isn't working and it's not going to work and it's not sustainable. And a, a lot of the ways that people deal with this health care cost dilemma, uh, if you will, is uh, amongst other things they will cost shift uh, some of that or maybe a lot of that onto their employees. And we were certainly doing some of that ourselves, but here we are in our business, we're looking at uh, just how extremely difficult it is uh, to find good people uh, to hire and um, uh, how you're so concerned about being able to retain who you have that uh, I was pretty confident that, that cost shifting, that wasn't going to be a great strategy. We had to find something different. We had to find a way to change the game. And little did I know when I launched into it that this actually became part of the whole broader people effort. It was really, it really became bigger than healthcare cost containment because uh, I realized that this, this had the ability to improve employee engagement, uh, raise productivity, improve safety, lower workers' compensation costs. There's, there's just huge connects coming out of this that I didn't initially realize. So, um, what we did um, is, uh, you know, as a first step, we had been in a fully insured program, and we went to a self-insured program, which did a couple things for us uh, right off the bat. First, it eliminated the need to pay the risk premium to the uh, insurance company, 
But perhaps uh, from a long-term perspective, it did something else even more important. And that is it gave us access to our own data. We, we could see the claims data and we could understand what kind of health issues were present in our population. And I think as finance leaders intuitively understand uh, you need good data to, to really work on and improve anything. So from there, we really, over the next um, three years or so leading up to now, we've implemented a number of cost containment tools, uh, healthcare cost containment tools for our employees. Things like telemedicine, advocacy, pricing transparency, uh, surgical centers of excellence, cancer care. And uh, the great thing about these tools is um, I like to call them win-win tools. They save money for both the company and the employee. But better than that, for the employee, they, they give that employee an opportunity to get a better level of care than they might otherwise uh, if they weren't using these tools and at the same time save themselves some money and really save themselves some time and stress. Uh, the healthcare delivery system is really very complicated. It's tough for people to navigate and these tools um, can help them with that. So. It really becomes a nice thing for the employees. They're getting a uh, really a more valuable benefit, and it doesn't really cost the organization much of anything to provide it. That's what's so nice about it. So uh, the other thing uh, that we've been doing uh, besides the, those tools is is focusing on health and well-being. And uh, you know, I think intuitively it just stands to reason that if you're uh, Improving the health of your population, um, that's going to be an important part of controlling future health care spend. But it's, it's really a lot more than that. It's, it's people who are healthy and feeling well, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more focused. They're going to produce higher quality products. Uh, they're going to be safe or they're more likely to be safe and they're less likely to have accidents at work. So. I just see it as a big win-win for both the company and the employees. And again, from where I started in this place of uh, let's try and save some healthcare dollars by however we might be able to figure out how to do that, it led into just this whole much bigger thing. While this can this can help us bring about higher levels of employee engagement because they understand that we care about them as people and their their health and well-being, and we're working with them. And um, it, it's just a lot more than healthcare cost containment. And so we were really um, pleased to kind of kick that off and found that, that it, it led us to a lot, a lot more than where we initially thought it would lead us to. So, so the path you, you chose there would seem to me that a big part of this is communication and helping employees understand uh, some of the choices that you made and why this is going to be a very positive step for them as well. Did you have a, a human resources team that you could, uh, you know, help implement this uh, with? And, and what maybe, or was there a third party that you worked with for a little while as you hammered out the template as to how, uh, you know, to educate the employees and do this? Sure. We, um, we really had a number of uh, uh, things that we did. Um, First of all, uh, we, we pulled all of our people together uh, and uh, really gave them a lot of insight into the problem that we had, the rising health care costs and, 
and you know the need to try and do something about that and some of the things that we were going to start doing right away and we also um, indicated to them right up front that um, look um, we're all in this together uh, your claims experience is my claims experience my claims experience is your claims experience uh, if if we do well here uh, we'll all benefit and um, so we made a promise right at that point in time um, that if this worked well um, it, it would benefit the employees in terms of they wouldn't be um, losing benefits they wouldn't be paying more for their current benefits and um, and we've honored that commitment so we've we've had a lot of success uh, controlling this cost and we communicate uh, that to our employees we make sure they understand how we're doing and um, and then we've we've lived up to the commitment that we've made to them uh, in that uh, for three years now we have not shifted any additional cost onto the employees and uh, we've actually uh, strengthened the benefit a little bit so at this point in time they have a better benefit than they had three years ago and they pay less for it and those those were big parts of it now our I, th I think especially when you're coming from a smaller company you really need a whole team uh, some of which are outside the organization to help you because here um, uh, we're small enough that I actually head up our HR effort as well and um, so we looked to our uh, broker consultant in the benefits area to help us with a lot of this and they have provided a lot of great help uh, including uh, pointing us in the direction um, where we needed to go as a small firm to really even be able to pull off self-insurance self-insurance is a great thing but there's a, a fair amount of financial volatility to it and you need a way to deal with that and, and in our case uh, we became involved in a um, in a captive for health care coverage so there are I, I believe at this point there are over 200 uh, member firms in this captive now and uh, the great thing about this captive is uh, that it's not just a funding mechanism to help us deal with that volatility it is also a very active engaged healthcare cost containment um, uh, kind of a captive so we meet twice a year uh, all of us members and uh, those sessions are all about helping us uh, understand the various opportunities that are available uh, perhaps more importantly how to implement them how to communicate uh, to your people uh, about them and to get them engaged in them so there's an awful lot of resource help there that's that's hard for a, a smaller firm to just figure out on its own I think a lot of bigger firms with a lot of resources in their HR and benefits area um, do a lot of this and understand a lot of this I don't think that a lot of smaller and medium-sized firms do a lot of this and it's primarily because it's hard to figure out exactly what to do so uh, I've, I've been very happy to, happy to be part of that captive to be able to get a lot of insight from them into how you can make all this work okay can, can I ask how large the workforce is today uh, about 60 Tom, we're going to get to uh, jump to our uh, mentoring round where I get to ask you uh, several quick questions. 
intended to uh, inspire and enlighten other finance leaders and aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? You know, I, I would say it's the thing that's um, not just exciting today. To me, it always has been, and I, I expect it always will be, and that is uh, in some ways I think finance might be uniquely positioned to have the opportunity to make a difference in an organization. You, you get visibility really across the organization, perhaps in ways that are not common uh, for other functions of the business. And there are just always uh, opportunities to work with others, uh, to help develop the strategic direction of the firm, to help others um, move their functions to better places. Uh, so you just get a great look at the business and, and a great opportunity to try and help be a big part of, of moving that business uh, in, a, in a better place, into a better place. So, uh, Tom, you've already uh, told us the story how you were really uh, sort of thrust into the CFO role uh, earlier than perhaps you even uh, wanted or expected. Um, but I like asking this question sometimes uh, to people like yourself. Yeah, going back now, if you could uh, maybe whisper something in your ear that day you were going to become CFO, what would you have told yourself? Uh, that it's all about people and leadership. It's, you know, it's interesting uh, in that finance and accounting are really very, very technical fields, and your early success is very much dependent upon uh, your ability to master that technical capability, if you will. But as things evolve uh, and you look at your career in a longer sense and, and trying to define how you will be successful over the long term, uh, to me that's really going to be based on your ability to lead. And um, so I, I, would, I would definitely say to younger people out there, um, pay more attention to the leadership aspect. Learn more about it sooner rather than later. Um, Look for good leaders. Uh, work for good leaders whenever you possibly can, obviously. Uh, pay very close attention to what they do and how they do it. Uh, talk to them about it. And um, wherever possible, uh, ask them to mentor you. And um, so I, that, that's what I would say. Probably spend maybe a little bit more time on the people and leadership issues uh, even before you get there and you have to deal with them, you'll be maybe a little bit more prepared than I was. Do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? I, I do, and I think that is uh, really a strong desire to learn, grow, and continuously improve. I, I think I think you should be learning every day. I, you shouldn't settle. You shouldn't stop learning, definitely, especially in today's environment where things change so fast. But um, I, I just think you should view every day as uh, there's going to be an, an opportunity to get better at something today. What is that something? Or, you know, maybe it's something that's uh, going to be a little bit longer term in nature that you're working on. But, but the main thing is, is stay engaged in yourself. Keep learning. Don't stop growing. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? I'd actually uh, recommend an author and pretty much any of the books that this author has has written. 
might be well known to a lot of people. Uh, the author's name is Marshall Goldsmith. Uh, he's written a number of things, including Coaching for Leadership, Mojo, What Got You Here, Won't Get You There, uh, and Triggers. And uh, I, I, I think he is a really terrific author in the fields of personal development, coaching, and leadership. And there's just a, a lot to be gained um, from, from what he has in his books, and I would certainly recommend them to anybody. I want to touch on something. You brought it up twice. Uh, you're, the association you're part of, the construction, is a construction financial association, or what's the, the title? The construction Financial Management Association. Yeah, so you joined this. It sounds like you've been a member for some time, but can you tell us a little bit about it? Is it just corporate finance folks like yourself, or what would you uh, – the mission of the organization? So um, the organization would be made up of uh, two kinds of members, uh, general members. That would be people like myself. So it would be high-level financial managers of uh, construction-oriented firms. So I'd be, um, you know, it would be controllers and, and CFOs. And the uh, associate members is the other class of membership, and that those are the people that serve the financial uh, management uh, committee or uh, community, so that would be uh, bankers, surety agents, insurance agents, uh, people like that. So uh, it, it's made up of of those two groups, and and that's all it is. And and when it's as narrow as that, it it allows the situation where everything is focused on uh, on the practical things that I really need to be paying attention to all the time. Now, are they able, is it a, an annual conference or anything local that you can even participate in? I mean, is it convenient to you as well? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's very convenient. So it is a national organization, and it's organized around local chapters. So we have a chapter here in northwest Ohio, and um, that, quite honestly, is where a lot of your networking opportunities come from, obviously. So we have a whole group of uh, financial executives in this area and, uh, again, those, those um, individuals that, uh, that, that help that network of financial professionals. And uh, we meet um, typically uh, once a month for about nine months out of the year. We take the summers off. And uh, we'll have um, – a, a session at every one of those meetings around some topic of interest to us. Um, it, it could be a lot of the things that we've talked about here. Some of it might be management and HR things. Some of it might be uh, things like uh, what the surety underwriter is looking for from you, uh, stuff that's highly practical. There are also um, regional conferences uh, which are um, typically two-day events. They give you an opportunity to get a, a more in-depth uh, educational and networking experience. And then there are annual conferences put on by the national uh, organization once a year. And those are, I want to say, those are about five-day events. So, so clearly uh, the focus on the construction uh, financial management uh, offers you a great deal of value. But have you also looked to join other uh, more generalist associations for technical knowledge or whatever it might be? Uh, yes. I mean, what I would say, um, 
those those other organizations like uh, FEA, FEI, IMA, uh, which is the Institute of Management Council. Those are those are all um, fine organizations, and they do good things. Um, but I really enjoy the niched uh, uh, piece that I get out of CFMA. Um, no matter how you slice it, with a broad membership to serve. Um, uh, one of the other organizations that I mentioned is going to have to be fairly broadly focused, which means only a certain percentage of those programs are going to be really useful to me, whereas uh, with CFMA, it's, it's optimal from a time and networking point of view. I can pretty much guarantee that um, almost every program I go to uh, associated with CFMA is going to be one that I can really use. And almost every person that I talk to at a CFMA meeting or event is probably going to be uh, somebody that's going to have things that are uh, common to me, things that we can talk about in our business, um, whereby I, I can glean some ideas that I might not have otherwise been able to glean. I do think it's like an amazing uh, resource when you have a an industry-specific group of finance professionals to turn to. Um, clearly, uh, many uh, industries do not have such a group, or at least a large group, or established like this one is. Okay, when we come back, we're going to ask Tom for his 12-month finance leader priorities right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. So finally, Tom, we like to ask, what are your priorities as a finance leader at Art Iron over the next 12 months? What would they be? Well, I, I think a lot of those uh, have been touched on, and um, they will definitely be priorities uh, here for the next uh, 12 months. Uh, I would uh, mention three and then get into each one a little bit, healthcare cost containment, well-being initiatives, and employee engagement. So on healthcare cost containment, uh, we hit on the communication piece before. Um, so we've done a lot of implementation in that area, and uh, we're not looking so much to do uh, uh, more cost containment initiatives per se, so much as we are uh, attempting to increase the utilization of what we have in place now. So uh, one of the battles you always face in uh, giving your population these tools is a lot of people tend not to think about um, using them until they absolutely need them, and by then it might be just a little bit too late and they're totally focused on whatever they need to do, and maybe it kind of slips them that 
we've explained that uh, while you can have a much better result if you use this tool and you do this and that and so forth. So we're probably going to step up our communication and look for ways to be more effective with that communication and see if we can't boost up the utilization of those uh, healthcare cost containment tools that we have in place. And on the well-being uh, initiatives, uh, we are looking to do a little bit more there, but I would say particularly with a focus towards uh, things that our employees have told us that they uh, would like us to do. So uh, we did, and I'd recommend everybody do this if, if you're seriously interested in the well-being of your population, uh, ask them. Uh, get their impression of what would be useful and valuable to them, and then try and do some of those things. So we, we've done a little bit of that, and we're going to try and do more of that, and, and then perhaps try and reach back out to them and survey this some more and see you know how they feel about all that so we can gauge how effective we are in those initiatives. And then, then lastly, employee engagement. We like to measure that um, uh, annually. So we're definitely, uh, we haven't been doing that for a long time, so we're definitely about ready to measure again. Uh, we're interested in uh, how we compare to prior measurement. And, and from there, follow-up is a little bit uncertain yet. We really need to see what those new numbers look like and what they tell us, and most importantly, uh, where those opportunities might lie to where we can impact employee engagement and uh, get, get better at it. Tom Walsh, thank you for joining us on CFO Coffee. Thank you, Jack. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFO Thought Leader dot com.